0: I don't remember how it happened but uh, one of our summer mission trips in support of a local church our team led a vacation Bible school and some, something went seriously wrong and they tapped me and asked if I'd step in and lead game time for a class of the youngest children. No time to prepare, they're out there in the field, just go do something with them. What would you do? I went with follow the leader. It was a good call. Like a string of ducklings, those little kids just followed me wherever I went, and they seemed to love it, to a point. We had to quit eventually. I had to come up with another game. But follow the leader. It's a nearly intuitive game for children and strangely riveting to them. But more importantly, as we mature... Children who become productive citizens of society demonstrate the capacity to follow the leader in many ways. The capacity to follow leaders opens doors in education, in music, and sports and theater and holding jobs and developing skills. We've got to be able to follow the leader. But as with so many aspects of adulthood following the right leader in the right way, can prove challenging. We've all seen failed leaders who take the wrong path, and blind followers whose lives are destroyed. The tragic end, we might think, for instance, the tragic end of the followers of Jim Jones in Guyana, or of David Koresh in Texas. But there are occasions, on the other hand, when following the right leader on the right reveals the virtue of the follower. Not long ago, we saw this principle on full display as we worked our way through the book of Numbers. It's difficult for Gentiles to appreciate what we read here earlier in Deuteronomy 34 and the deep reverence the nation of Israel had and continues to have for Moses. Moses was Israel's chief leader from slavery In Egypt, he was the leader who brought them to Mount Sinai and met with God and gave them the law. He was the leader who took them through all those wilderness journeyings and the troubles and the trials that took place there. And somehow, by the grace of God, he held them together. And Israel to this very day reveres this man who brought them to the edge of the promised land. And through Joshua ushered them in. This was the leader who met face to face with God. Who shepherded Israel. And in the 40 years of Israel's wandering path through the desert, from Egypt to the border of Canaan, following Moses became the evidence of the Israelites' fidelity to God. To follow Moses was to follow God. As we saw in Deuteronomy 34, Moses was not without sin. But as he led Israel, following Moses was following God. And Israel revered Moses for that. So we can perhaps just begin to appreciate the deep reverence that the Hebrews, to whom this book is written, those original recipients, the deep reverence that they had for Moses. There were even some rabbinical traditions that claimed that Moses was greater than angels. I don't think they were right about that in the understanding as God would look at it as creator, but there was that tradition that was there. And for them, there's a temptation to move back to Moses and the Old Covenant. It's a lot safer to follow that direction than to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a world that's out to get Him and out to get everybody who follows Him. So as the author writes... This temptation is very real. To return to that old covenant system instituted by Moses and to turn away from following Jesus as the steward of the new covenant. I'm doubtful. Let me say it this way. I'm pretty certain there's nobody here today that's under severe temptation to follow Moses and not Jesus. It probably doesn't hit any of us right on the head here today. At the same time, we need to recognize that we are under constant pressure to drift away from following Jesus by following inferior spiritual guidance of one form or another. So for us, it's very eclectic. There's a lot of different avenues and different, different ways and means. For them, at least in this part of the book of Hebrews, It is returning to the Old Covenant and Moses. But we can carry forward the principle to our day, the principles that we find here. And so Hebrews 3 serves as an invaluable word of exhortation from the Holy Spirit for us to to take on the life-orienting, all-encompassing decision to follow Jesus as the supreme and faithful leader of God's people. This might sound like that... Class that I led around and follow the leader, it might sound like this is a lesson pretty good for them. I mean, isn't this clear cut, the most obvious thing we could say? It is and it isn't. It is because we know this as the followers of Christ, and yet we are under constant pressure to compromise that following. Follow Jesus as the supreme and faithful leader of God's people seems to be the theme of verses one through six. Let's work our way through them together. Hebrews 3 verse 1, therefore my holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The imperative there is consider Jesus. It's like put Jesus on display there right in front of you and let's continue to consider him. Chapters 1 and chapters 2. He is God, very God. He is man, very man. He is the one who has redeemed us. Now consider Jesus. Let's focus upon him. Who does he appeal to? Uh, to the holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, holy brothers a holiness, pointing back to one three and the purification that we receive through Christ's sacrifice. The brothers tagging in—you see that there—tagging in back to verse twelve of chapter two, and the solidarity that was being built there. The, these are the brother. We are the brothers of Christ. We are. We are His. Friends in that sense. And so, so again, coming back to that idea of the solidarity with his people, now consider this Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. He is the Apostle, that is, he is the sent one, the one on mission to save his people, and he's the High Priest, this is how he saves his people. As the mediator, standing between God and man and paying the cost of our sin, ministering in that way, in in a way that is in accord with our confession. I think that's probably just speaking of the Christian faith. The trust in Jesus' crucifixion. The knowledge of His resurrection from the dead. His ascension to the Father's right hand. His reign there today, drawing together a people for His name and the promise to come again. Consider Jesus. He is that apostle and high priest of the faith that we confess. There is no other. But what specifically are we to consider with respect to Jesus? He gets to that to verse 2. Who was faithful to him who appointed him. That is, he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So a comparison made here with Moses. So we, we've got to think this or we lose the whole passage. Moses... Old Covenant, the leader of God's people under that covenant, Jesus, the leader of God's people under a New Covenant. So if you want a picture in your mind, just think Old Covenant, think Mount Sinai and the law. New Covenant, think Mount Calvary, the cross and the empty tomb. These are the the two pictures, the contrast that's being made here. As we consider that, notice the linkage here, that both are faithful. Christ to the Father who appointed him as Son. In his mission as Apostle and High Priest, Jesus was faithful to the Father. And notice there again in verse 2, was faithful in all God's house. Don't think brick and mortar here, but think household The family of God. So Moses led the people of God on earth at that time. Jesus leads the people of God today. Both were faithful. We know Moses was not without sin. But he was faithful. Jesus also is faithful. This is the contrast that's being drawn here. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So both faithful, but Christ with greater glory, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. We have to kind of work this out a bit. Again, it's, it's deep in its writing. There's a bit of flowery concept here in, in the way that he constructs the ideas, but it's pretty straightforward for us. Let's just pick it apart briefly. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That may have shocked the socks right off of those who read this. How do you have more glory than Moses? Now they should know this, but some are struggling with that concept. Think of Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin on his face shone Because he had been talking with God. The very glory of God shone off his face. That's glory. On a human level, that's glory. Numbers 12 says, The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. Remember, they are opposing Moses in his leadership. They're saying, yeah, we're all like Moses, and this power should be shared with us. And God comes and intervenes and says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. You see that there. Undoubtedly, the author drawing from that line, he is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That is high commendation. As we read earlier, there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel, says the, says the one finishing out the book of Deuteronomy. No one, no prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty powers and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Think Exodus, think Numbers. And what Moses did is he led Israel through the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews is getting right in the grill of those reading this and is saying, Jesus is more glorious. That would have carried some serious weight. And it needs to carry weight with us as we compare Jesus with anyone and any method of sanctification in our lives. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As verse 3 continues, as much more glory is the builder of the house is more honor than the house itself. That's a fairly clear illustration to us. Imagine this beautiful mansion that's been designed and people are writing about it all over the world, this wonderful mansion, and they have a great open house and here comes a, a limo up to the front of the mansion and out steps the architect builder who built the whole thing himself, designed the whole thing himself. I mean, people are... They're, 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 Pictures are being taken and interviews are being sought and people are cheering and ooing and awing of this one who has built this mansion. He doesn't come in and they're all bowing down to the mansion. This is the guy that built it. This is where the glory belongs. And so indeed, verse 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. I think here pointing providentially to God the Father as the architect of every household that stands, at least providentially so. It means that Jesus as the Son is the head of the church to which He gives eternal life. He is the head who passes on His eternal life to us and so He is the one who is to be exalted above all others. He is greater than Moses. The mediator of the new covenant is greater by far than the mediator of the old covenant. As great as the architect and builder of the house is greater than the house itself. So don't turn away from Jesus. Here's how that could be summarized. Verse 5. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant To testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. A few things again here miss us culturally, but the word servant here is not is a servant of great honor and importance. One who had responsibilities to run the household. And the idea of son here, again, is not just who was the father that birthed someone, but here in the sense of the son who operates the household, here the church of Christ, in, with the same authority as the father. So the father, God the father, is the designer of all households. Of every system, certainly electing Israel and then electing the church. He is the father of all of this. But the son who does what the father does, the son who operates with all the authority of the father over the house, the church, is Jesus Christ. He's not letting them wiggle out of this at all. He's covering every corner here. This is Christ. He is the Son in the Semitic sense of the word, sharing equal authority with the Father who designed all of this in eternity past in fellowship with the Son and the Spirit. So Jesus is by far the superior steward of God's people. As great as Moses truly was, as verse 6 continues, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, Let's make sure we don't miss that. We are his household. We are his people. We are his family. This family that Christ has redeemed, over which he rules as head. This is, we are part of that household. Now you notice there a phrase, or a word, and that is the word if. If, indeed, we hold fast our confidence, that is, our faith, our confidence in Christ crucified and risen, if we hold fast to the gospel and our boasting and our hope, that's not we're proud, but that's we look to the eternal shores that Christ has won for His people and we find there our home. That's my home. That's my boast. That's what I talk about. That's where my interest is, ultimately in being with God in eternity as a forgiven sinner. So, just to, again, summarize, emphasize, he's saying you are a member of God's people if you continue to cling in confident faith to Jesus as your Savior. Jesus doesn't just hand out tickets to heaven. Once you've got one, you can live any old way that you want, believe any old thing that you want to believe, and you're good to go. No, it's the, the, those who will enter into eternity are those who will continue to put their trust and their confidence in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, they will continue to exalt, boast is the word he used here, to exalt in our final destiny in Christ's presence. So let's break that down a little further. That means the evidence of salvation in my life, the evidence of salvation in the life of this church together, is not a self-improvement program, but trust in the gospel. It is not riveted to this life and what it offers, secondly, but it is a pilgrim journey, focused on our final and far more glorious home to come. The people of God are identified by the fact that they hold an open hand toward this world. They're not here, they just don't orient their life toward clinging on, holding to everything. Everything that is missed is a major disappointment. No, their focus is on eternity. And they live with far more clarity in this world because their eyes are fixed on the one to come. These are the evidences that one belongs to the Lord. What this author is not doing is preaching self-dependence. I hold on for all I'm worth, and Jesus tries to wiggle his hand free from mine, or he sits passively by, but as long as I hang on to him, I'm good. That's not what he's saying, of course. We sing the song here often, he will hold me fast, and we mean it. It is he who holds us fast. And yet there is this synergy. We cling to Him. Those who enter eternity are those who are clinging to Jesus crucified and risen. And this is my home. I've been waiting to arrive my whole life. That's how we enter into eternity. Many Christian churches don't talk like this it should be i think a grief to us and something to encourage and try to build up as we meet with other people but they often speak far more naturally in terms like this you will enter into eternity if you trusted christ as your savior that's absolutely true nothing wrong with that statement as it stands but hebrews doesn't tend to point us that way It doesn't tend to point us back to remember where you crossed from death into life. Remember where you began to trust Christ as Savior. That's all assumed and all there, but the emphasis is so constantly forward. There's nothing wrong with looking back. Think of the Apostle Paul writing about his conversion. It's there, it's important, it's absolutely real. But the focus of the author of Hebrews will be constantly forward. That we are walking down the right pathway. Not backward to focus on the decision of faith we made once upon a time, but rather to say, where are we now and who are we trusting? Where are my eyes set? That's what he's going to continue to shake us to consider. Not what happened in the past, but where are you traveling? How are you getting there? Let me make this real, real. I... Talked to a professing Christian who was living in open adultery, in rebellion against God, in rejection of the church and its call upon her life. And as I talked through where she was at on the journey, she continued to come back to a prayer that she prayed when she was a little girl I know I'm a follower of Jesus. And I'm looking at her life and saying there's nothing in your life that indicates you're a follower of Jesus right now. I can't read your heart. I don't know. But I do know that clinging to something you did as a little girl is really not what you should be holding on to. There was no capacity to articulate the gospel. There was no love for meeting God in eternity, there was just a love to live in sin. Now again, I'm not standing here to say I'm God and I'm the judge and that I know the future. In fact, I have great hope in this individual's life now these days. But the point here, just to illustrate, don't do that If you came to faith in Christ at a particular time and it's clear to you, rejoice, write about it, tell your family about it, your friends, broadcast it widely, but don't trust in that moment. Trust in Jesus. Only his death and resurrection are going to get you into heaven, are going to allow for your faith, for your sins to be forgiven. Trust in him. Again, we can't see into one another's hearts. As we say in our membership orientation often, I often say people that are genuine Christians, their noses don't glow. It'd make life a lot easier for us. We wouldn't have this membership seminar if it wasn't, probably. Uh, they, they don't come with a halo. It's the life we live that bears evidence to the faith that we have. So Hebrews will, the book will press us again and again to keep the focus forward. In what direction and with what spiritual fervor is a professing believer tracking? This is all we can ultimately judge. Now I'm going to admit here as we move to verse 7 that it starts a new unit which we will, Lord willing, consider next week. If I had my... If I could do what I wanted to do, this would be a two-hour sermon on all of chapter 3, and I'd be here talking to the wall. But uh, it, it'd be best if we could do that. We'll, Lord willing, be able to finish it out next week and put it together. So I'm just admitting I know this starts a new section in some sense, so it's not point one and two as it presents itself in chapter 3. But I think the therefore... Of verse 7 sufficiently ties it to what comes before so that we can carry on a ways into this new section and indeed put it together as we consider this theme of following Jesus. Verses 7 through 11 would call us to follow Jesus in submission and faithful response to his will. So, who he is, the supreme and faithful leader of God's people, and how we then are to respond in submissive and faithful response to His will. Verse 7, quoting here from Psalm 95, drawing upon Israel's experience in the wilderness, the author says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. That is where they complained against what God was doing to move them under Moses' leadership to the promised land. There was complaining and whining and attacks on God and attacks on his leaders and a rejection of all that God wanted to do. They'll come then next to that time when they refused to enter the promised land. But let's note, first of all, here in verses 7 through 9, speaking of Moses in verses 1 through 6, it seems to, in a sense, remind the author of Israel's failure to follow God and the old covenant leader. For 40 years, they saw God's miraculous presence as he led them from stage to stage. They saw the works of God right there before them the exhortations to obey God, to follow his will, not to follow their own. And the entire time, their spiritual rebellion revealed what about their hearts? By failing to follow Moses in submission to God's word, they revealed their own rebellion. Their rejection of him. So as we apply it to the Hebrews, the author is saying, don't do that. Don't be like those Israelites. Or to us, do not harden your heart by failing to follow the voice of Jesus. That voice today is what? For many Christians, for too many, in my thinking, that voice is something in their head that they hear once in a while that gives confirmation to where they should go. People, the voice of Jesus is the New Testament. It's in the written Word of God, which reflects His teaching by His apostles and is pointing us to the instruction of the Lord. It's objective, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is inerrant, and it is sufficient. This Word has been entrusted to us in written form as the voice of God. We can take it home and trust it at every turn. Do not harden your heart then against the voice of Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, means don't harden your heart against what has been revealed in what we call the New Testament. But back to Israel, how did God respond when Israel failed to follow Moses? Verse 10, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. They will not go into the promised land because they will not trust my word. I mean, I, I'm, I'm bent at places to really pity Israel. You're coming, you're not a militaristic people. You've been slaves for longer than anybody standing can remember. And you're coming to this promised land against strong military forces with walled cities and horses in some cases you've got none of that and your will by every system of wiring in you is saying run do not go in there and god says follow my will i want you to take this land When they would not heed the voice of God, his discipline fell, and he said, you will not enter my rest. This generation will not enter into the promised land because they will not hear what I am saying. They have not known my ways, it says here in verse 10. That doesn't mean they were ignorant. It means they didn't practice it. They didn't follow through with what he said in their disobedience. Israel's disobedience then fueled God's anger against sin, which it must, for God is just. And it resulted in divine punishment. That generation of Israelites was not permitted to enter the promised land. Entrance into the promised land, verse 11, is the rest he's talking about here as pertains to Israel. But he's going to take that idea of rest and run with it through the rest of the chapter, And that will be a reference to our walking with Christ. Our following Him in faith. So there is something of a typological foreshadowing here of this final rest in God's presence. Hebrews, you've got a big advantage here. You can go to the Old Testament Scriptures and you can see what Israel did putting her will ahead of God's, and you can see the result. Do not do that in following the leader that now leads you to the final rest, Jesus Christ. We can be locked out of heaven by pulling off the path and failing to follow Jesus to the end. He's pointing us ultimately to the rest of heaven, but even now to the rest of trust in Him Do not cease to follow Jesus. And so I ask you individually, as in some sense, I ask us as a church have you entered that rest? Are you trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for sin? Have you received his forgiveness from your sins against God and your sins against others? Are you living in such a way that it's clear that your final home is heaven, not this world? You hold this world loosely. Another way of asking these questions is to ask if you've entered God's rest for His people. Augustine famously said that we are born restless and our hearts never find rest until they find it in God. Indeed, the most tragic suffering in life, this life and the next, is to fail to enter the rest that God provides as we put our trust in Him. The only way into that rest is to follow Jesus. What does that mean? Well, think of it in terms of the examples that he's given. What it means is that self is unseated from the throne of my heart. It means you actively follow Jesus' example of fidelity to God, it means to embrace Jesus' teaching, the New Testament as the central focus of your life, the sufficient source of every trial, all suffering, and every spiritual need. There should never be any confusion that we live to follow Christ and to walk in fellowship with Him forever. In part, that means we must continually ask ourselves, what does Christ want me to do? And what does Christ want me to believe? Undoubtedly, that's... There's differences of opinion in that. How we go about it and how we understand it. But we work together, we continue to be humble and to listen and to grow and to seek to conform our lives to what the Scriptures teach. But that's my orientation in life. I want to bring glory to Christ by what I do and what I believe. The rest of God looks like giving yourself to a life That joyfully conforms to his will. Now, right there, if you're awake at all, you're saying, I'm not there. I strive to do that, but I fail. I don't always do that. But by the grace of God, I repent, there's conviction, I turn from my sin, and I want my life to look like that that I'm giving myself to joyfully conform to his will. In what I think about, what I do, the goals that I set, the way that I relate to this world. Such a life is very different than one that's oriented toward what can I do to get God to do what I want. we got to graduate out of that anemic, infantile Christianity. I push the right buttons and I get God to move and fulfill my will. No, the whole thing is oriented the other way. How do I live to fulfill His will? And so, Christian, keep following Jesus. And unbelievers, start following Jesus in repentant faith and trust today. This is the only way to rest. Never thought of it at the time, but my follow the leader game with that group of kids served as a subtle lesson of what life is really all about. In the end, it's about following the right leader down the right path all the way home. And when you recognize that leader is Jesus Christ, you follow the right leader. He's on the right path, and he does take you all the way home. In that, we should rejoice and sing. Lord, we thank you. We just thank you. We praise you for your goodness to us. We know that these words take a lot of application and we recognize it's certainly not an easy road we in fact in some respects grieve today for we've seen a missionary family that has poured out some 20 years of building relationships and businesses and blessing people and standing for Christ fleeing for their lives perhaps never to go back we grieve today again as we consider how the Chinese government has used recent uh, physical challenges and illness to control its people and to continue its path that it had already started now to see A supported missionary and family coming home from there. It's a hostile world. It's not a world where following Jesus is safe. We recognize this, Lord. We know there are losses as well as gains. It's not trust Jesus and everything turns out rosy. But there's no other leader, there's no other path. He alone is the path to the Father. And He alone, your Son, is our entrance into eternity. We make no other claim. We hold to no other confession. We trust no other Christ. Lord, this church today stands together in our belief and our conviction that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that He is the returning Savior. And I pray that You would help us in our words to one another, in our life together, to continue to build one another up in the faith, to continue to follow our Savior. And may we never turn away. For those who do not know Christ in this way, Lord, we long for them to see what they cannot see in their own strength. I pray that You'd open their eyes and that Christ would become their Savior through faith. Lord, we praise you for this reminder and pray that you would deepen our souls in these truths. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.